Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to Ebooks and Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien. On this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Arsen Gerber about her new book, The Work of Art, Valuing Creative Careers, which was published by Stanford University Press in 2017. Welcome to Ebooks and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm delighted to have Alison Gerber talking about her new book, The Work of Art, Valuing Creative Careers. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's really nice to be here. This is a really great book, um, and it's kind of interesting, well-written, well-researched, but I think most of all, actually, it's quite important, um, given where we are in terms of a lot of debates about kind of art, culture. I think there are relationships with, you know, um, things like the creative economy, broader stories about uh, who consumes, who produces art, and the book speaks to lots and lots of those things, and I guess the really obvious way to introduce it is to maybe situate it in terms of your own thought and your own career. So can you tell me the kind of the story of the book? Uh, sure. Um, and thanks very much. Uh, I'm glad you liked reading it. Um, yeah. So when I um, started doing research as a sociologist, I was uh, mostly curious about sort of the intersection between working life and public life, um, and especially for people without stable paid jobs. So um, I wasn't taking sort of a, a democratic public sphere I- idea of what public life was. I was sort of thinking about people have everyday lives, and a lot of those lives are spent working. So um, we kind of tend to think that sort of stable paid employment is the basis for our idea about work, but we know that most of us don't fit that mold. Um, Most of us never did. And a lot of us don't have those kinds of opportunities um, in front of us either. So there's, um, there are all these new categories uh, that like self-employment is sort of exploding with all these different kinds of practices. There's new kinds of temporary and contingent and contract and freelance work. Um, And what I was interested in was like, if you're in... Uh, anything other than a stable job that you know you get to keep, how do you figure out whether the things you do are worth doing? And once you've decided they're worth doing, um, exactly how much are they worth? And I ended up thinking that artists were a really interesting case to think about this with because the continuum between, like, let's say Jeff Koons, rich and famous, and your great uncle who's learning how to paint, that's like a pretty long continuum. Those people are pretty distant, but in some senses, they're both practicing art. And I got interested in, okay, where are the lines? Where's the line between doing this as a job, not doing this as a job, making money, not making money? And I found a lot of fuzziness there. Um, So I got interested in processes of professionalization. And that led me to an interest in artists associations and in artists unions. And that led me to this interest in sort of value and valuation along that whole continuum from Jeff Koons to your great uncle. I I guess the other um, element in that, you know, you you kind of 
nailed that really well in terms of the idea of work and you know having a job or you know having a vocation not having a job job or whatever but but the other thing is like is art itself as well and the idea of kind of artworks um and i wonder if you could say sort of a little bit in addition to the idea of kind of artists being a case study but like why is the work kind of interesting as well like particularly i guess in terms of you know the sort of problem of valuing uh art you know that um we've got money but we've also got like aesthetics that kind of cross over okay i i think for a lot of people artists seem strange as a population to ask questions about the world and life in general right a lot of people think artists are very special or very different um they're either intimidated or dismissive about whatever it is that artists do um but it's it's a really interesting field because issues of value and quality are really ambiguous they are open for debate and to some extent that's how we like it right so it's this activity that you can do um you can make money at it, or it can cost you a lot of money. You can be really highly credentialed. You can have an MFA from the best school. Now you can have PhDs in art practice, or you can have no training at all. So those are like two, just two dimensions. But even along those two very important dimensions, there could be four people uh, who all have their work in the same exhibition, right? Like that work is of the same quality in some sense. So quality is not necessarily connected to any of these dimensions that are easy to identify in a lot of other uh, occupations, right? Like we would prefer to have a highly credentialed doctor. We don't necessarily prefer a highly credentialed artist. Um, We don't really care if they make money at what they do, generally speaking, when we're looking at the products of their practice. And so um, there are all these vectors of diversity in art worlds, but um, along all of them, quality and value are sort of correlated, but not determined by one or the other side of the continuum. And um, a lot of people do really interesting work on valuation in the arts, but they tend uh, to look at the uh, like the prices of art objects. Um, and I think that that's really useful for thinking about the pricing of art objects, but not for thinking about practice. And it's actually sort of artistic practice that is a good proxy for lots of other kinds of practices in the world that are sort of problematically made into a job. It, it brings to mind, actually, the the kind of ground clearing you do in the second chapter, which is the, the idea of how the language or or maybe the kind of like self-understanding of of doing art has changed from i guess the kind of like you know we make art to like being or doing an artist um and and, and i guess it, it's kind of interesting because that story you told about both the kind of you know artists as a good example of all of these things that are happening in contemporary capitalism is maybe captured a bit by this shift from making to doing yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, so that chapter, it's actually based in large part on this early work that I was doing around associations and artists' unions. So those are those are organizations like, let's say, CARFAC in Canada, which uh, has been really successful, has uh, developed an artist's fee schedule and sort of enforces the payment of artists' fees in Canada. Um, so... 
what I got interested in was um, the sort of the, the sort of changing language and I and set of ideas around what it was that artists did that was worth paying for that you can see pretty clearly in the archives. And so I would say that there's a uh, there's a pretty clear split um, between say art making 50 years ago and art making today and what the split looks like is artists in the 60s and 70s took uh, a sort of object based approach to what they did so they thought and they argued that what they did was worth paying for their sort of labor was worth some kind of remuneration because they had made things and that meant, for example, that they were very concerned with issues around copyright, right? They wanted to protect their property rights over these things that they had made, these objects. And they weren't always making objects. Uh, they were sometimes making performances or uh, other kinds of more ephemeral let's say, objects with quote marks around it. But they still talked about those things as though they were objects. So they were very concerned with, uh, for example, if they made uh, a performance, that there would be a copyright over that performance. They talked about it like it was an object. And then if you fast forward, starting in the 80s, um, artists shift pretty quickly from this object-oriented logic, and they kind of reconceptualize themselves as providers of services. Um, so the language they use doesn't change very much. They've talked about services forever. But when you look at what they ask for, it's really clear that what they believe they've done and what they think is worth paying for has actually changed quite a bit. So artists today are much more likely to imagine themselves as um, providing a service to an institution that has requested it. There is often an object um, and that object, you know, whatever, we could sell it. It's not a big deal. But artists tend to focus on their activities in service to institutions when they ask to be paid. Um, so say they make an object, a sculpture. Back in the day, um, like 50 years ago, they were very likely to be concerned about things like exhibition rights. So that means maybe you pay them uh, a rental fee for the object, or they were concerned about moral rights. The the you know the uh, this object, you don't get to exhibit it any old way you want. You need to actually let me retain moral rights over the object. Uh, reproduction rights were a big deal. Um, and today, artists are very likely to sort of calculate the work they do to get the object into the exhibition space. There's a sort of um, like black boxing in some sense of the object itself. Yeah, we can sell it. That's a big deal if it happens, but often that's not the point. Often the work is not saleable. What we're interested in is, sorry, I'm speaking like, I, I find it easier to think this through if I like embody the actor who's speaking at any, any moment, which becomes a problem when I sort of try to embody people I very much don't agree with. But anyway, um, <laughs> I, I did this yesterday when I was teaching with Hegel, and uh, I'm not sure that I, I am a, a good embodier of Hegel, but it worked. Um, <laughs> anyway, sorry. Um, 
So if I'm an artist today and I have an exhibition, I'm quite likely to be aware of uh, the time I spent to make that exhibition happen. All this time I spent sort of negotiating with the curator, traveling to the exhibition, packing my work, getting it sent properly, um, creating new texts for the curator to use in the exhibition, right? I spent a lot of time um, and my time has value. So... I have sort of shifted in this case towards a, a vision of myself as a kind of professional who provides services to institutions. Um, and again, this is still true even if I make objects, just as uh, 50 years ago, artists who made performances, they could conceptualize those as objects and sort of think about property rights instead of labor rights, which are much more common today. I, I should say, actually, one of the things that is really great about the book is those voices um you know that i guess the way we're talking as a kind of introduction um to the themes in the book um you know we're, we're talking you know in terms of like these trends uh in the art world or in how artists kind of you know conceive of themselves as, as a body of of workers but actually the book is full of these kind of individual stories and, and maybe actually we'll kind of round up with one individual story that um that kind of nails some of the uh, the, the, the issues uh, that the book is is illustrating. But obviously, one of the things that the book does really well with these individual stories and these individual narratives is give us a kind of uh, overview of, of the similarities and differences that are going on in terms of how this process of becoming, you know, art as an occupation, you know, art as work uh, has happened. And the bulk of the book is about these four, I guess, kind of accounts, narratives, almost sort of ideal types in a way of being an artist, um, of valuing or, you know, of what value is, and then of like what, what the job is, what the kind of occupation is. And they are to do with, you know, money, um, credentials, vocation, and then the kind of social relations in which an artist is embedded. And I guess we've got to kind of work through those four because that really is the heart of the book. So could, could you tell me a bit maybe about these kind of uh, pecuniary, credentializing, vocational and relational accounts? And then we'll we'll move on into kind of, you know, teasing out what some conflicts and uh you know, maybe some some kind of like day to day issues are with them. Sure, um, and thanks for. I, I tried to capture everyone's voice in a I don't know in a respectful but readable way, and I'm glad that it came across well. And I think these chapters in particular, in the middle of the book, it's a lot of you know other people's voices, and I um, I hope that the sort of texture. Of, of these four things that I'm going to talk about as sort of ideal types, right? Those are quite, my, my sort of analytical categories are pretty removed from what people actually experience themselves or say. Um, but I hope their, their voices are still in the book in a way that's, uh, I don't know, that's legible and that gives them the respect that they need. I think it's easy when you talk about ideal types to completely abstract yourself from the sort of grit of what you're actually doing. Um, so yeah, the, the middle of the book uh, very much focuses on these uh, ideal types uh, or logics or frameworks or frames or uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm not committed enough to any particular uh, theoretical 
set of ideas around the definition. So I sort of, uh, a, a Weberian ideal type is also a good way to think about this. Um, so what I did there in the middle of the book is really descriptive work on like, okay, if you have committed to this idea that what you're doing is worth doing, how do you explain that? How do you explain it to yourself? How do you understand it? How do you make arguments to other people when they don't want to pay you for your work? How, like, how does it work? The, the real, like, sort of everyday of this is worth something. Well, what's it worth? Um, and the uh, two chapters are this kind of explanation of this typology. Um, I don't love these words, but I had to, I had to find some words so I can go through them sort of in turn. So the, the first one that I go through is really, I think it's straightforward. Uh, I call it pecuniary accounts. These are, you know, like bottom line bread and butter accounts of value. Um, imagine somebody sitting with an Excel spreadsheet and just making some decisions. So, um, I, I, I often use the example of uh, an artist named Josh. So I asked him a little about how he considered his finances when he began a new project. And he says this, I always have. Uh, even when I was borrowing money from the bank to make work, factoring how I would pay it back, the math that would be required in order to pay it back, doing math like this photo is going to cost $25,000 to make, and it'll be an addition of five, and each one will sell for 15000 That means I'll make 7500 for each. That means that 7500 times five is the total income less the investment of 25,000 equals this in my head. Yes. Right. So this is like the super confident, straightforward account. It makes sense to pretty much everyone. And it's one type of account that like um, a Weberian would call an instrumental account. Right. Um, a second type of account, uh, one that maybe a Weberian would also call instrumental one that a Borduzian would sort of put more towards the, the market side of the diagram. Um, those are the ones that I call like credentialing accounts. So you can see these whenever artists point to the fact that they could always teach or the fact that they could do some kinds of um, more commercial work, right? Um, and that's pretty common. And, and it sort of implies that the, the, the real value in what they do is the sort of uh, credential that it gives them in working life. Um, and what you see is actually a lot of people develop skills in their artistic practice that they take out not just into commercial art, that what we call commercial art, right? Like being a wedding photographer or whatever, but also into all these other fields. So for example, I talked to a guy um, named Peter, who's a sculptor, and he had worked as an engineer for a long time. He didn't have an engineering degree, but through his artistic work, he had developed pretty amazing like 3D drawing chops. And so he could work in this small engineering firm uh, and be an equal member, even without the sort of degree that the other people he worked with had. Um, and some people would see these two types of accounts as ways to make sense of artistic practice in sort of instrumentally rational and economically calculative terms. I sort of, I think that they go together in a slightly different way, but that's, that's a separate issue. I mean, it, it strikes me those two actually are the ones where you don't have to get involved in discussions about what's special about art or what's, you know, kind of unique about being an artist or something like that. Whereas much more interestingly, things like the vocational accounts, 
you talk about the way you know it has a really different orientation in terms of how things like time is about you know it has a very different um almost kind of individualist approach to dealing with the idea of work being public or for people um and i guess vocation relational are, are maybe things where there's more of an attachment to the kind of um difference that being an artist is about versus like dare i say it sort of normal jobs right um yeah i guess i would agree that the first two types these like pecuniary and credentialing types they in a lot of ways don't differ so much from uh what your dentist would say about what they do but there are these moments where the sort of specialness of art emerges right so in credentialing accounts for example you see a lot of people talking about this thing that i call like the art artistic temperament um they really say say in a lot of different ways that artists either based on their sort of inborn temperament or in the kind of sort of nexus of practice and education that artists get, that they are very special people, that they have a very special capacity to almost do anything. Um, I sort of think of it as like an, it's like the argument about liberal arts educations, like, oh, well, if you're, if you're well-educated, you just understand that this person can do anything because they went to a very good liberal arts college, right? Um, and the artistic temperament looks a lot like that. And people People talk about, you know, walking into these careers like the engineering firm and being very confident and saying like, oh, yeah, I can I can do this. I mean, I, I'm an artist. I can do almost anything. Um, and it seems like hubris, but uh, I have a, a lot of instances in my data set where uh, it seems to work. Um, people saying, you know, I can do this. And then they have these jobs that other people train for for 20 years. Um, so the specialness of art does come out in some small ways in pecuniary and credentialing accounts. But I uh, totally agree with you that the relational and vocational accounts are, it's much more on the surface. And they're also much more like effectual and interpersonal and argumentative in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, it sounds bad, but they're, they're sort of, I guess much more how many public understandings of being an artist are now. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, you know, you, everybody brings up Coons and you, you sort of start with him, but there is that tension, isn't there, with, you know, the kind of like the naked capitalism approach. People get kind of like, well, I'm not sure. Is that really art? You know, whereas these more relational vocational approaches, even though they're oppositional in many ways to, you know, the kind of broad social organization that they confront actually that you know social settlement is much more comfortable with them being like that i'll sort of preface relational and vocational accounts by saying that like a, a Weberian view would also say that these are value rational accounts um and i think they're like a little more complicated and in particular the way that they interact with the other accounts is kind of complicated so if we talk about relational accounts um these are stories where what you do is worth something because um, uh, basically for political reasons, uh, it builds community, it nurtures relationships. These sort of extend into um, arguments about, you know, what art is good for in society, building a democratic society, building uh, a critical populace, things like that. So um, 
I often sort of talk about this woman, Rosemary, that I interviewed. So she runs a really big project, um, and it costs her and her partner. She she's a full time collaborator with another uh, artist. Uh, it costs them about twenty six thousand dollars a year, which then they have to go out and make in paid work. Um, and she sums up this sort of impulse, I think, really well. Uh, she talks a little bit about how she grew up really poor, and she does understand that this is a lot of money. <laughs> like this is a lot of money to be spending on something. But then she compares it to the ways that other people in her sort of. Uh, middle-class life spend $26,000 a year on school tuition for their kids and they don't think about it. Or they spend $26,000 extra a year on really good food and they don't even think about it. And she says, instead of having a kid, we have our community, right? She imagines her practice almost entirely as a place that community in a very specific sense can be built. And a lot of relational arguments kind of work that way, right? They they create spaces, they create relationships, uh, art as a way to create relationships with really specific contours. Um, so that's relational accounts. And then this fourth type of account, I mean, it's like, it should be super obvious to anybody who knows anybody in the arts, but also maybe to, you know, anyone who works as an academic, anyone who reads sort of contemporary um, self-help about work. So vocationalists, accounts, there are these arguments that the things we do for love, not money, they have real value. And they end up providing, this logic ends up providing the the quotes from artists that I found the funniest in this work. Like, I very literally still laugh out loud when I read some of these. So for example, Armando tells me, when I say time for myself, I mean time for my work. <laughs> which is not a foreign sentiment to me, to be honest. And that's why it makes me laugh. Or um, Peter tells me, uh, I'm one of those people, I'm just always working, which is really hard financially. And I think for people who don't have this like vocationalist bone in their body, that sentence doesn't make sense. And for everyone else, you, you have this moment of recognition. And it's for me, it's a slightly horrifying moment of recognition. And it makes me sort of laugh in embarrassment that I identify so strongly with that. As I think, you know, we are trained to do now. We're supposed to love our jobs and see ourselves in our jobs and really, really, really strongly identify with uh, sort of our occupational category. Um, this idea that you love what you do do what you love and blah, blah, blah. It's pretty normalized now. I was going to ask you this at the end, but I think I'll ask you this now. Like, where do you actually fit into this story? Because obviously there's the relationship between the kind of things that are coming out in narratives of artistic practice and work and the narratives of other sort of vocation-led um, quasi-institutional occupations like being an academic. But in chapter six, you, you sort of tell a story about kind of Alison Gerber and the art world. Then it'd be interesting now you've kind of flagged that up to, to hear a bit more about it. Sure. Um, yeah. So before I went back to school to do a PhD, I worked as an artist. Um, and I was in a kind of a particular art world within, you know, it's, it was a niche that I was in. Um, so for example, uh, 
I worked mainly with nonprofit institutions. Um, I did a lot of residencies. You know, I did a lot of travel and sort of would go somewhere, work there, teach there, maybe do something else and then go home. So it was this very sort of like MFA oriented art world, even though I don't myself have an MFA. Um, so that's one small art world. Uh, it's super highly globalized and you can make a living at it. Um, not like a great living, but you can make a living. So I had worked as an artist, uh, for some years and then I moved to Sweden from the U S, um, in 2003 and my working life turned completely upside down, even though the things I did, like the daily tasks that I did and the products of my labor were roughly the same. And that actually was the spark that got me interested in all this. Um, it, I, I moved to a place where art was much more highly professionalized. There was a lot more closure around the professional category. Uh, there's a lot more public money going directly to artists. Um, but then there are all of these ways that whether you are or are not an artist, whether you are or are not legitimate becomes very interesting. So, for example... Uh, I would do an exhibition in uh, an art association, like a nonprofit locally run, you know, like an art center, roughly. And when you do that, you get a small pile of money uh, called like a reimbursement uh, for the exhibition from this large national organization that's like the organization over all of the smaller art associations. But you get that if you have an MFA. So it doesn't really matter what you did, and it doesn't really matter that the art association where you exhibited uh, believed that what you did was visual art worth showing. If you didn't have an MFA, you weren't really an artist. And then there was a complaint procedure <laughs> where you could apply for this small pile of money, despite your lack of appropriate credentials. And there are very, very clear um, uh, uh, guidelines for what you have to have done in your life to be considered to be an artist worth paying. Um, so they include things like uh, you have you you need to do four of six uh, you you need to have four of six merits, and they include things like well if you have permanent public art that was paid for uh, with public money somewhere maybe you count or. If you have gotten a very large working grant from the state, then maybe you're an artist. But even that isn't enough. You have to have four of the six. So I got just really interested in these professional boundaries and especially in how people talked about the value of what they did when they did or didn't think of themselves as professional actors. And this is all regardless of whether you have a job or how much money you make. Um, one of the things that really struck me was that when I lived in the U.S. and worked with art, um, almost everybody had a pretty significant day job. And almost everybody roughly, with, with sort of distance, I would say volunteered their work uh, as artists. Um, but when I moved to Sweden... Uh, people in general really thought about, artists in general, really thought about their time in terms of a 40-hour work week. Um, 
They were relatively unwilling to commit time to things that were not going to be paid in some sense. There were all these things that um, sort of state structures around that professionalization and the ways that professional associations had succeeded in making life for some artists better had really created a lot of interesting boundaries. And that's how I started with this, you know, sort of cross-national artists associations interest. And that sort of narrowed and narrowed and narrowed into this more U.S.-based study on artists. Um, But it's been also really interesting to think about the category of the artist differently than I ever would have when I was working as an artist, Um, and to really see, like, how small and (laughs) niche and disinterested in the rest of the world the kind of art that I used to do was. So because for the book, I... Uh, I think about art in terms of practice, uh, and I define sort of I, I define the artist for the purposes of the book as anyone who's shown anything in public in the last year. Well, that requires me to include a lot of people that either I didn't even see as an artist before, or if I saw them, I didn't think their work was interesting or any good. Right? Like, you don't necessarily love the work that's up at your dentist's office or think about the religious sculpture at your church as being um, real quote unquote, real artwork. Um, But I sort of had to like learn about all these really, really distant from one another art worlds. And that was really interesting because I still have a lot of relationships from when I worked as an artist. And when I would tell people about what I was doing, they would like sort of look at me really skeptically and be like, I haven't seen you around that much, as though their art world was the art world. And most people think that way, and that's not unusual. But it was really striking when I was trying to take take a step back and think, okay, who 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 counts for the purposes of this study? That's about like practice in general, not art objects that I like. Um, and obviously, there's a massive question about who counts for tax purposes, which it it's kind of like it it sounds really sort of. Um, unbelievably bland when you kind of say, like, what is an artist for tax purposes? But, you know, this goes to the heart of precisely what you were illustrating. You know, you've got one system that effectively, you know, the state authorises art and not art. And then you have another where, you know, a combination of market validation, civil society, you know, uh, as you say, you know, volunteering labour, uh, gives you a sense of art, but it produces, you know, a kind of almost non-public, closed, closed world. And I and I guess the story that you close the book with, uh, the story of uh, Venus de Mer's tax audit, is a really good one to tell because it it, it it brings up, you know, kind of really neatly all of these um, kind of complexities and and I guess you know sort of difficulties that society has with drawing boundaries around the artist and and not the artist even at the point where we're trying to take it seriously as a job and as work and and as an occupation yeah the the venus's story is so is so crazy um And I think it's really useful because this book is about valuation, right? And we can imagine that that's not actually that interesting. But 
it really matters. And it shapes how we make choices and how we make claims on the world. And when we can't get the world to understand, especially when we can't get the world to understand something that makes total sense to us and seems to make sense to the people around us, it can have really serious consequences. And so I wanted to use Venus's story because audits, I've, I've done a bit of work um, with artists' audits in general, in general. And her story really crystallizes the ways that um, conflicts over value aren't these sort of things that happen in your heart or your mind that don't really matter, right? It's not an existential crisis necessarily about the value of the things that you do. It's also a set of arguments that you're having with the world all the time. And the world sometimes bites back. Um, so Venus, Venus de Mars is this artist and musician, and she is very much an institution in the Twin Cities in Minnesota, where I grew up. So I've always known who she is. Um, her band kind of played out a lot when I was in college, things like that. So we'd never met, but she was on my radar. And so I hadn't lived in Minneapolis for a long time, but I'm still in touch with folks there. And I started hearing that she was in the middle of this audit uh, by the Minnesota Department of Revenue and that it was really interesting, right? Like people were fussing about it. And um, I sort of thought like, hey, hey, this is this could be kind of interesting. And I got in touch with her and I sort of introduced myself and I said like, hey, if you could call sometime, that would be great. I would love to talk. And... Uh, she called me one night, uh, really late, like past midnight. She had just played a show um, and she was really upset. And she told me that, um, so she hadn't had a, had a day job in about 10 years. And the year before this audit, she made about $30,000 from her artwork. So that's like enough to live on. Um, and for a really long time, she had worked with an accountant. She had filed a Schedule C each year. So a Schedule C is this itemization of your profits and losses. And for a lot of small business people, uh, this kind of like is how business works, right? You, um, you need to accept some losses over time and you need to be able to deduct the costs of doing business or, you know, a lot of businesses don't really work otherwise. Um, and you can treat art as a business. So if you file a Schedule C, um, you can write off your business expenses, the tubes of paint you use, your computer, things like that. Um, but the Department of Revenue had audited Venus and had determined her officially to be a hobbyist. So I think the reason the story is an interesting one and a totally crazy one is sort of it, it gives you a sense of what this actually feels like when this happens to you, right? So at one point, I asked her this really stupid question on purpose. Uh, I was like, well, why does this even matter? And she had been uh, very dry until that point, And then her voice kind of broke. This is in that first phone call. And she said, it feels like it's discrediting me as a person and just throwing my 20-year career out the window, saying you were just playing the whole time. It can crush you. So I decided to sort of follow this story over a couple of months until it was resolved. Um, I traveled to Minneapolis to go meet her and her partner. Uh, I talked to her accountant. I talked to some other accountants. Uh, I met a woman who had made a documentary about her, you know, talked to artists in town and sort of everyone was so worried because she was an institution, right? It's obvious that she's a professional artist. If this happens to her, what could happen to 
everyone else. So people were really concerned. And eventually, she, uh, you know, there was a lot of back and forth. It's very crazy. You know, the IRS won't look at her tour posters, and then writes in a determination that there's no evidence that she ever promoted her tours, crazy stuff like this. But the interesting part, I think, is that the IRS and then these state departments of revenue that use their guidelines say that the taxpayer needs to show a profit motive to be considered uh, a business. But that's obviously crazy, right? Like profits and motives, or sorry, um, like profit motives, motives and intentions, they're really hard to prove. And I argue that artists actually have a particularly hard time showing that they have a profit motive since generations of them have been taught to act as though on the love money scale, they do art for love, not money, right? Um, So the Department of Revenue issued this final determination, and it's fascinating. Um, And this section read... I'm going to quote it, the presence of personal motives in carrying on of an activity may indicate that the activity is not engaged in for profit. And underneath that, there are these bullet points that sort of outline the case against Venus. And it's very short. And in just a few words, this auditor sort of takes the whole of art history and just tosses it out the window. He really relies on this myth of money as the antithesis of love to discredit her. So the first point of evidence reads, it's very simple, the music and art are self-created by the taxpayer based on her life experience and perspective and are intensely personal. So I've seen these exact same words cut and pasted into other audit documents. So they seem to function in the agency as this comprehensive dismissal of an artist's claims of professionalism and serious intent and profit motive. Um, And yeah, sometimes like professional and amateur, sometimes there's a really clear bright line. Like, again, with your medical doctor, you maybe want somebody who's uh, accredited. But in the U.S., that line is really, really fuzzy. And so somehow an organization like the IRS and the State Departments of Revenue can be this mechanism that we have to determine your status. Um, And if their vision of the value of professional work, the value of economically oriented work is very, very different from your own, it can cause a lot of trouble. Um, I I will say this story, which is insane, kind of (laughs) ends up kind of on a positive note. Uh, One day, Venus just got this notice in the mail that said um, they had uh, not just this was 20. What is what was it? Twelve thousand dollars in lawyers fees later. Uh, Venus just got a letter in the mail that said they had determined that her uh, art and music activity was engaged in for profit as defined under Treasury. And in that letter, uh, which is the end to all of this, she had a there was a check for seventy dollars because in the end, the audit showed that she was owed a very small refund. This is after years, twelve thousand in lawyers fees, a small heart attack. It, it, it's a crazy story. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think these, these kinds of stories are really important because they can show 
how how value isn't just this um, set of technical topics about the economy or these ideas about what's in your heart. It's also um, how we sort of think about what it is that we do and what we should do and who we are. Um, and yeah, I, I'm really glad that Venus uh, let me share her story because it's an amazing one. And I hope it sort of brightens up other other folks' ideas about um, conflict over value and why it's interesting. And, and it takes us almost seamlessly back to where we started with the sense of, you know, it, if the settlement now is like, you do art and by definition it has to be you know intensely personal and you know kind of a reflection of the self and this kind of stuff it's almost like the kind of the occupation is now set up in opposition to the way that kind of socio-technical system validates it or doesn't um, and one of the things that's you know for i sort of looked venus up and one of her facebook posts is basically this kind of like tax advice for artists under the heading Venus is officially an artist or something like that and and again you know we're back to the kind of how you negotiate the I suppose sort of drives and narratives of and you know you kind of mentioned Bourdieu in the the later parts in the kind of technical bits of the book but you know that aesthetic or disinterested moment versus yeah but you know we've got to do our tax returns (laughs) it's you know, like, and and it's. I guess it kind of sets up a really interesting moment for uh, for further work. So, are you doing more kind of stuff around this, or um, are you off to be a tax lawyer? What what's, what's your kind of your your, uh, your follow up to this? Um, a couple of things. So, you mentioned Bourdieu. Um, uh, one of the smaller things that I'm working on now is actually coming out of this work, trying to think about the place of binarism and duality in social theory generally, because um, one of the things that has come out of this work is a real sense that um, this sort of binary of love and money doesn't function as a binary in the art world, uh, that it's actually sort of there's this dance between the two that artists use and and genuinely believe probably but i don't claim to look inside anybody's like dark heart um but but using this sort of dance between money is actually really important for positioning yourself as a real artist right so go too far down the love road and you become illegitimate go too far down the money road you become illegitimate and the same with these other two sort of relational and uh credentialing lines of valuation. I sort of imagine this, like this uh, solar system where you're always trying to negotiate these bodies that um, give, you know, they throw off light, maybe they allow you to make some sense. But if you get too close, um, what, you know, you run into the sun and you burn up, you're not uh, a legitimate artist anymore. And I got interested in that because I was paying attention to first stories people told about other artists who quit, second, artists that I knew who actually quit, and third, people that I met who had once been artists but were no longer artists. And in almost every case, they basically did the same things as they used to do. Um, they still painted or whatever. Um, and I was trying to understand what, like, what quitting was. What's the line? And 
someone summed it up really well. I think uh, Derek summed it up really well. He was talking about someone who had quit, quote unquote, quit. Uh, and that person still was a very active painter. And he kind of snickered and was like, well, yeah, but it's like Michael Jordan throwing like a paper ball in the waste paper basket. That's not basketball. So over time, I tried to figure out what it was about this. Where was this boundary? And I ended up feeling like it was very much uh, about the negotiation between various accounts of value. So those accounts, they weren't in conflict in the sense that we like to imagine in Borgia, right? We like to imagine that like diagram, the X, with, right? And it, 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 makes it, e- it makes it easy to sort of think about things in terms of purity, right? Uh, makes, it makes, uh, it, it's an easy way to think about art objects, but I think for artists themselves, you need, um, you need more dimensions uh, and maybe a different kind of force. So that's one project. Uh, then I have another project uh, that I'll call, like put under the smells category. <laughs> like that's the smells umbrella. So this started with a project about a year ago to sort of think about the, uh, let's say the olfactory landscape of value and difference in Sweden. So I'm now living in this place where um, a sort of like olfactory silence is necessary for civic life. Um, You're just not allowed to smell beyond the bounds of your own body. And there's, I'm trying to think about the the sort of way that the senses and the irrational sort of play into processes of moral and political inclusion in this context where uh, increasing numbers of increasingly diverse people are are coming to the country and, you know, the country is trying to in- incorporate them in some way. So that started um, about a year ago, and I've been doing a lot of work, especially around um, sort of the creation of the Swedish body in schools through like school law, curricula, textbooks, arguments about how to teach kids to shower, things like that. But it has also kind of turned into this project um, that's trying to understand the ways that researchers across the university use sensory data in their research. So, um, yeah, thinking about like how scientific and academic practices deal with uh, non-discursive data or, you know, data that's not language and numbers. Um, So that's that's what I'm working on now. Alongside, um, part of my position now is to collaborate with an organization here called Landskrona Photo. So they are this important local, uh, local as in Nordic organization for photography, um, exhibition, conservation, promotion. And so you can see sort of, I, I know that this seems a little crazy, but you know, all of these projects are about valuation and I've gotten more and more interested in non-discursive data. And that has brought me to this work with this photography organization that's going to be uh, building an archive and research center, a new one. Um, and so I am working with them to build this new uh, yeah, this new center, sort of building on my work with how scientists use and need and access uh, non-discursive data. Um, yeah. And so I'm working with them. And over the next couple of years, we're going to build this archive uh, on the local sort of state level. And then the idea is that over the next five years or so, it also becomes the national archive with responsibility for um, image heritage in Sweden. It's a little crazy at the moment, but everything's, it's all great. But I, uh, I am still so new at all of these new things that I don't have a way to sort of elevator pitch any of them. 
Thanks for listening to New Books and Critical Theory. I've been your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien. On this episode, I was talking to Dr. Alston Gerber about the work of art, value in creative careers. 